So if you got a Bible, uh, please open to Jeremiah 30 tonight. Really excited about this study uh, this evening. If you remember back to Jeremiah 1, uh, there's a verse in Jeremiah 1 that set the tempo and set the pace for this whole book. Um, when God called Jeremiah, when Jeremiah said, God, I can't do this, God said, yes, you can. I've put my word in your mouth. I formed you for this. I made you for this. I've destined you for this. Uh, and Jeremiah says, you know, okay, God, I'm, I'm going to accept your call. God gives Jeremiah kind of an outline of his ministry way back in chapter one. Uh, and it's uh, br- broke down for us like this in Jeremiah one, verse 10. Uh, the first part of that verse says, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Not just Israel, but Jeremiah, God is telling Jeremiah that this message I'm giving you is going to have implications that's going to impact all the kingdoms of the world. Not just in your generation, but all of time to come. So that's a pretty big deal, right? This isn't just a once, one generation's message. This is a generational over and over again message that would impact the rest of time, uh, which here we are, right? Uh, so clearly God had it. God knew what he was saying. I've set you over nations and kingdoms. And then he gives this outline to Jeremiah to pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow. So basically he says, I'm going to give you a word, Jeremiah, that's going to be, uh, it's going to give you um, some visions and going to give you kind of a, a depiction of the world kind of falling apart. Uh, that, that, that this initial revelation I'm going to give you is not going to be easy one for you to hear and it's not going to be easy one for you to preach and it's definitely not going to be one that people are going to want to hear and want to accept. So what we've learned uh, at the beginning of Jeremiah through chapter 28, um, that the word from God is a wrecking ball to Israel and to the rest of the world, but mainly to Israel. It's a wrecking ball that tears down, uproots, and destroys or tells about the destruction that's going to come on the nation of Israel, how they are going to be, um, because of their rebellion against God, not because they were in God's will, they were out of God's will, and because of that, they would uh, be overwhelmed by Babylon, conquered by Babylon, deported to Babylon, and the nation would be destroyed from the, the, the farmhouses to the temple. It would all be raised in fire because of Nebuchadnezzar's army that would come upon the land. Now, we have seen that um, come to be, or we've, we've seen that the Jeremiah's message kind of ends in chapter 28 with this is what's happening, or this is what's about to happen with the people going to be exiled and the destruction being imminent. So we've read about that tearing down, breaking down, destruction and overthrowing of Israel. Um, it was a message of judgment, consequence, and sorrow because Israel refused to repent, trust, and obey God. But if you'll remember, and if you look at number two, there was more to that verse. Not as much, but clearly more. Jeremiah 1.10, the rest of that says, and to build and to plant. So Jeremiah, I'm going to use you as a bulldozer to basically go through and tell Israel that it's all about to end as they know it. But in the place or, you know, over the the ashes or in the ashes, in the aftermath of the destruction, you are going to lay the seeds or plant the seeds for something that's better that's going to come. You're going to tell them of a day and age that's going to come that'll be better than the previous glory that they knew that will come up in the aftermath of this rebellion, of this destruction. So, yes, it's gloom, it's doom, it's destruction, it's judgment. But also you're going to tell them that there's something to look forward to. There's something to hope for. So again, this book is not all gloom and doom. It's not all hopeless. It's about how God's going to build back something better. So Jeremiah is one of the most important books in the Bible. Theologically, um, it, it contributes so much to what we know about the character of God. If you study, if you read any theo- theology books, which of course, you know, don't do that. That'll be kind of, you'll, you'll, be, you'll become like me. 
just read some devotional and some commentaries, that's a lot better to digest. But if you read theology, most of, a lot of the theology that is, that is you know, uh, written down and, and then it's organized really comes from the book of Jeremiah because God's character is laid out so clearly and the person of God, the character of God is revealed to us so clearly through Jeremiah. We get a full picture of his nature, his standards, but also his grace that is given to those that even disobey. So the reason why we call this study covenant it's because Jeremiah is a book all about covenants. It's about one covenant being replaced with another covenant, old being replaced with new. It's almost like Israel's unfaithfulness, their lack of ability to, to keep their part of the deal. It was not surprising to God. So this book is about how God is ending the old covenant, that it's coming to an end because Israel could not keep its part of the deal. The old covenant was a two-way street. God will if you will. If you, then God will. But clearly Israel was not able to. They didn't want to, some might would say, but they just weren't able to, as Jeremiah found out. Uh, Israel was unfaithful in their lack of ability to keep their part of the deal. God says to Jeremiah, I'm not shocked. I saw this coming. Go back and read Deuteronomy. I told y'all this was going to happen. I didn't want it to happen, but I could see the future. So he uses this opportunity to inform them that this was his plan all along to replace it with a better deal. So it was almost like God made this covenant with Israel so that he could then say to them later, I told y'all this wasn't going to work. Here's a better deal. But he was, what was God? Why did God use this time? Why did God buy this time? Because he was trying to let the world get developed as he wanted it to so then he could reveal himself in a major, major way. It was all about setting the stage for Jesus. Of course, we know that. So it comes, um, so as it is, um, Jeremiah uh, really teaches us about God's covenant, God's relationships that he makes with people through covenants, partic particularly with Israel. Um, you could say that his work with Israel was twofold. Number three, to reveal himself to the world and to reveal ourselves to us. So when God made a covenant with Israel, his intentions was to use Israel to reveal himself to the world. We've made that very clear. We studied that in Exodus. We've studied that in Jeremiah. It was to reveal himself to the world, but also... Jeremiah teaches us that God's, the reason God chose Israel and made a covenant with Israel that they broke was, that he, was so that he could reveal himself, reveal ourselves to us, as in it's a mirror that exposes our sinful nature to us. So if you didn't know how sinful you were, this covenant shows you how sinful you are because you cannot keep my law, and it makes it very clear that we need a better prescription to remedy our hearts. Now, Jeremiah thought... Jeremiah thought that Israel could recover on their own. He thought, all we got to do is obey God and we'll get through this. But it became clear to Jeremiah as time went on that Israel did not have the ability to keep the law and to keep this covenant, that they needed a better one. The proof of that revelation is found in Jeremiah 8 and Jeremiah 17. I've got it here to remind you. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. Jeremiah came to this conclusion in chapter 8. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Because the covenant couldn't save people. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. So it was a heart issue. I mourn and dismay has taken over me, taken hold of me. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? As in, is there no way for them to recover from this? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? So Jeremiah says, we've got the covenant, we've got the law, why can't we get over this? But it became clear to him that there was an insurmountable uh, obstacle in the way. And that's verse seven, chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. So what was wrong? 
It was that the heart of people was desperately wicked and that we could not obey our way out of it. So Jeremiah figures out that they need a better covenant. So then we turn to chapter 29, and from that point forward, or at least for the next four or five chapters, uh, there's a breath of fresh air that enters the room. For the next few chapters, we see a change in tone that begins to communicate to Israel that there was a future for the nation and for the world. As with the Old Testament in general, God was faithful to Israel even when they were unfaithful to him. They've been deported. They're in exile. It looks like there's no hope for them, but God says, don't worry, I'm going to bring you back because I'm not done with you and I'm not done with the world. So in this section with Jeremiah, we are introduced to a new covenant. Not tonight necessarily, but next week we will be. We're introduced to a new covenant. The new covenant um, is a a redemptive, regenerative work that God's going to do in the hearts of people. God's going to do something to the heart to allow us to be in fellowship with him. The law just exposed our sin, but the grace through the new covenant would heal and deliver us from sin. So that's the distinction from old to new. So the promises from 29 to 33 are really rooted in, and they serve to reflect a work God was going to do in the future. Um, Chapter 30 is going to be about setting up this new covenant, also about the impact of the new covenant on the world. Uh, So just to be clear, a lot of our conversations um, that we've had about Jeremiah, we've talked about Israel. We've talked about Israel as this vehicle that God was using to get the world to the, to the time of the new covenant. But I want to make it very clear, and tonight makes it very clear, that God wasn't just using Israel and then going to just move on and then just you know, treat them as if they didn't mean anything to him or as if he didn't have a plan for them. God still had a plan for Israel. And chapter 30 is about specifically reminding Israel that he has a plan for them in the immediate future, but also in the, in the, the far-flung future, which is why we're going to talk about that tonight. So uh, God's work through Israel would continue to be crucial in revealing himself to the world. He continues to use Israel to this day, uh, and and it's part of his plans to fully realize his vision for the world uh, in the age to come. So we're going to see that play out tonight. Uh, So we're going to be talking about uh, the new covenant, how it was set up um, in Jeremiah 30, but also we're going to find that Jeremiah 30 kind of previews the wrap-up or previews the end of this age, so we get to see the beginning and the end of it. Um, we see how the new covenant spiritually impacts the Jewish people and, of course, everyone else, and also how the new covenant literally impacts the nation of Israel in the, in the day to come or in the days to come. Uh, so God's going to make some promises to Israel in this chapter, uh, the first of which are general and universal and powerful in a spiritual way that impacts us. And then we're going to see him make some promises to them, uh, liter- speaking to literally the nation of Israel. And, and it's going to talk to us, uh, you know, in the, in the terms of eschatology or the end times uh, and how history has played out. So I hope that makes sense. The beginning of our conversation is going to be about the spiritual application. The end of it is going to be about the, the eschatological or the end times, the historical application. So I hope we can get through this uh, without getting too lost. So. Um, To break it down for you, number nine, uh, Jeremiah 30, 1 through 17, addresses captive Israel. Israel is in uh, in captivity. Uh, It promises them that there is a Savior who is coming, or a Savior will come, and will ransom them from bondage. And, And the state that we see Israel in, and really we gather from this chapter and many other chapters, Israel as a nation has always been in some sort of state of bondage. 
that the whole story of the Bible is that Israel is always, you know, taking a few steps forward, but getting knocked back a few more steps. And, and history tells the story of an Israel that really embodies the whole plight of the human race, that Israel kind of embodies the sinful bondage that we're in. And as they struggle in the historical, uh, you know, uh, t- timeline, it's a picture of mankind as a whole. Um, so as they face slavery and anxiety and loss and suffering, it's a picture of the human race. Um, in, in a very clear way that we can see in history. So here in Jeremiah, we see them in this role for the first time since the coming a nation. Uh, they came out of slavery in Egypt. Now they're back in slavery in Babylon. The message that Jeremiah gives them is you need a Savior and that God is going to send a Savior. So if you look with me, um, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 1 through 3, listen to this word or this promise that God makes them. The word of the Lord that came to, Jeremiah from the, came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I've spoken to you. So it's just a continuation of the revelation of God. Verse 3 is the big deal. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, comma, and they shall possess it. So I make a distinction there because there's a difference in returning and possessing. There's a difference in going back and having control over, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. So if you've ever, we all have heard that song, Oh Come, Oh Come, Emmanuel. There's that line in there where God says he will ransom captive Israel That is inspired by verse number three, where God says, I will bring you back or I will ransom you from captivity. So literally in 538 BC, God brought Israel back to the land. Persia took over the empire of Babylon and Persia allowed the Jews to go back. But while they went back, they did not take possession of. So that's an important distinction to make. More on that in a minute, but I want to talk about verse 3 in a spiritual sense, the way it applies to every reader, no matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, but as a Christian, how this applies to us. The Hebrew here, uh, the behind bring you back from captivity, the Hebrew here can be rendered restore the fortunes, restore your fortunes. So as Christians, we cling to this promise and its hope. The days are coming, Jeremiah says in verse number three. The days are coming when our fortunes will be restored, when our bondage will be over, whether literally or physically or or spiritually. As you can imagine, depending on what situation you're in, when you read this, this can either mean something to you physically, if you're going through some season of bondage in a literal way, but all of us can relate to this in a spiritual way. Um, We don't face bondage in a literal sense, but every generation faces bondage in a spiritual sense. Every generation has only one hope, and that is the help of God. So against the backdrop of the literal bondage of Israel, God is able to communicate that the nature or the nature of the Messiah that's going to come. So against the backdrop of their bondage, God is going to explain to them the work the Messiah is going to do for them. So I want to drop down to verse number 12 and read through 17 as God explains what he's going to do for them that the world couldn't do for them and that religion couldn't do for them, only the Messiah could do for them. For thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable. Their heart, right? Not their bondage, because he could bring them back, but he's talking about something bigger. Your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicine. So again, it's kind of grim, but it gets better. 
All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy. So this is the result of their rebellion. With the chastisement of a cruel one for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. So what is their problem? It's their sin. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities, because of your sins have increased. I have done these things to you. God's allowed them to see the full measure of their sin. He's pulled back the band-aid and said, you're going to see what sin does. It destroys, it kills, it puts you in bondage. But, verse 16, Therefore all those who devour you shall be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. If you think there's a little bit of a jar, it's meant to be that way. He says in verse 12 through 15, I can't, there's nothing you can do for yourself. And then in verse 16, he says, but don't worry, I'm going to do something for you. What did they do to deserve this? Nothing. But notice, God doesn't always explain himself when he goes from one thing to another. Because the nature of God, we should at this point understand, it's a gracious nature. It's a loving nature. It's redemptive nature. So God says, I'm going to devour those that devoured you. I'm going to get rid of your adversaries. Those who plunder you, you shall plunder, or you shall become plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will make a prey. So God says, you can't fix your problems. You can't fight your enemies. You can't overcome your affliction. It's incurable. It's severe. It's beyond repair. No one is there to help you. So guess who's going to step in and help you? I am. Verse 17, for I will restore health to you. Who will? I will. So if you know somebody, and if you look in the mirror, you know somebody. If you know somebody that you think verse 12 through 15 applies to, someone who is so far gone and that, 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 that there's, no, even, there's no, per, no sense in them even trying to fix themselves because you know they can't, which is me and you. But look around the world, there's plenty of people that we would put in this category. God's promise to them is, I am going to do a work for you that you cannot do for yourself. I will restore health to you and will heal you of your wounds. What's their wound? Their heart. I will heal your wounds because they called you an outcast saying, this is Zion, no one seeks her. So what is God saying? Israel, people walked away from y'all thinking you were done for, there was no hope. But that's the very reason why I'm going to do the unthinkable for you. Again, the enemy looks at us and says, what can you do for these people? They are completely too far gone. They are so much, they've made a mockery of your image, God. Why would you do a work for them? And God says, that's exactly why I'm going to do the work for them, so that I will be glorified and that they will respond to me with praise, with worship, with adoration. I don't think there's a better, better depiction of the gospel uh, in terms of God to us than these few verses of Scripture. God says, I will restore. On the basis of what? Not because we deserve it. Not because we're asking for it. Because God says, I want to do this. I think that's pretty incredible. Israel's captivity brought with it bondage and slavery, but also emotional, mental pain and agony, intensified friction and unrest between all the people. And God says, I'm going to send you a Savior that's going to bring you salvation. Here at number 16, the Messiah would be a liberator. He'd bring freedom. The Messiah would be a peacemaker. He'd bring peace. The Messiah would be a comforter. He'll bring comfort. 
That's what the cross can do for us. It cures the incurable. It heals what's beyond healing. It makes new flesh grow where a gaping wound is that seems to be festering and beyond repair. Freedom from sin, fear, and guilt, and shame. Peace with God, others, and ourselves, and our circumstances. Comfort amidst pain, suffering, struggles, setbacks, and hardships. How can we find this? We know the full version of this. Only in Christ can we find this healing and this help. There's more to this chapter, though. I could preach on that all night, but I want to move past this and get to something else because I think you all really benefit from this next part as well. But don't, move, don't forget about that stuff because that's really good. Uh, there's more to this chapter than I think will benefit us if we talked about it because I mentioned there is a literal promise to Israel made in this text, and we skipped some verses that deal with that specifically. God says back in verse 3, I will bring you to the land and you will possess the land. But remember, they, brought, they came back, but they didn't possess it. We made that very clear. Um, when they came back, if you look at number 18, I've got it broken down for you. When they came back in 538, they were under Persian rule. They were allowed to rebuild. They were allowed to regather, but they were not free. They were Persian. Uh, they weren't slaves, but they were like tenant farmers. They sent money to Persia. They took, you know, they, they were, they took orders from Persia. This lasted several, uh, several hundred years, uh, over uh, almost 200 years or more. Um, and then the Persian Empire gave way to the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great died and split his empire up into fourths. The Seleucids took over the Middle East. So the Seleucid Empire, which was the leftover from the Greeks, the Seleucids ruled uh, from 332 to 140 B.C., and in 140 B.C., uh, because of some of the, 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 the tensions between the Jews and the Seleucids, the, the Jewish people under the leader of Judas the Maccabean, that's Hanukkah, if you've heard that story, Judas the Maccabean says, you know what, we don't, we don't want to be in slavery anymore. We want to bring, we want to finally possess the land. They've been reading Jeremiah saying, hey, when's a Savior coming? When's a Savior coming? And it seems that the Maccabean people thought they were the Savior. They thought they were going to produce the Messiah. They had this kind of complex that, well, if, why not us? Why not us? Why can't God use one of us to be the Savior? So Judas the Maccabean, or Judas the Hammer, they called him. He said, you know what? I, I, God might be going to send a Savior. He might not. I'm going to be the Savior until he sends one. So Judas rises, rises up, leads rebellion, and frees the people from the Greeks, and builds his own dynasty that is called the Hasmonean dynasty. But the Maccabean people realized that they were not the Messiah. They weren't descendants of David. So they only referred to themselves as princes. The Maccabeans realized or believed that God was going to send a savior. They were setting the table for him. They were getting things ready for him. And they believed that God was using them to set in this stage. So from 140 to 37 BC, the Hasmoneans ruled uh, and, and, and they were again waiting for the Messiah to come. But the Messiah didn't come. A guy named King Herod came, backed by the Roman Empire. Herod was an Edomite, uh, the old enemy of Israel. The Edomite king Herod, with funding from the Romans, took over the Hasmonean Empire, conquered the Hasmoneans, and established the kingdom of Judea as a slap in the face of the Jews. Rome named him king of the Jews, even though he was neither king nor Jewish, just to try to make the Jews realize their place. So they thought they were about to possess the land, but they didn't. So Herod ruled, and his dynasty ruled from 37 B.C. to 70 A.D. And of course, 70 A.D. is when the destruction of the temple took place and when the Jews were dispersed and Israel was wiped off the map. But Rome thought they would be funny. They thought they'd be cute. 
the Romans wanted to erase the Jewish history from the world because the Jews had been a thorn in their side after initially being friendly to them. They thought, you know what, these people have caused us so much trouble. The Christians are causing us trouble. Let's make a statement. So the, the Romans wiped Israel off the map literally and began, began to refer to the territory as Palestine. Palestine was, uh, was, for a long time, a territory along the coast uh, of Lebanon and Syria, but Palestine was a version of the old nation, Philist- uh, the Philistines, or the Philistia. Palestine was a callback to the Philistine people, and Rome thought it would be cute to name the area Philist- uh, after the Philistines, Palestine, as a way of saying to the Jews, David never won. Goliath should have won that battle, and we are Goliath, and you are David, and David's gone, and we aren't, and we are going to replace Israel with Palestine, so that anybody that thinks they can test us, they go ahead and back off. From then on, from around a little hundred or so A.D. to 1948 A.D., the land formerly known as Israel was known as, as Palestine. And there are people that still call it Palestine to this day, people that don't want to acknowledge the, the, the Bible and that don't want to acknowledge what history tells um, and are mad about what happened in 1948. And what happened in 1948, of course, you all know this, Israel reemerged after the Holocaust. The world leaders gathered together there in the aftermath of that horrific uh, uh, Nazi Germany uh, you know, uh, uh, deal. Uh, the victorious nations came together and uh, allowed Israel and helped Israel regather to its own land as a way of building, restoring what they believed was, was, was a nation that had a history beyond um, the first century, way back to the the ancient times because of God's covenant with Abraham. So they did the right thing. They restored the nation, and they they helped organize the government. And, of course, we know that Israel is a sovereign nation and probably one of the most sovereign nations in the the world uh, at this point. You cross their line, they'll make sure that you you aren't allowed to to speak for it afterwards. Clearly, though, um, that is a fulfillment of this promise, isn't it? Because Israel didn't possess the land in 538 and 140, or in 70, or beyond that, of course, Israel did not possess the land until 1948. So 2,000 years later, they finally possess the land. The reason I bring this up is it's impossible to talk about this text in Israel possessing the land without realizing that they have achieved this in, not my lifetime, but in the last 100 years, right? That's pretty incredible, isn't it? But verses 4 through 11 deal with the aftermath of them possessing the land. And the reason why it comes before verse 12, verse 12 is a new thought unit. Verse 12 is, is, is kind of a next section. So that's why it's out of order, if you want to put it in order, if you will. But listen to verse 4 through 11, and then we'll, we'll try to wrap up. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins? As in, everybody is in immense pain or in immense turmoil. So after Israel possesses the land, there is no peace. That's, the, that's what the text is telling us, that Israel's in this constant state of almost losing it, which has been the story of the last 70 years and will only be more of the story in the future. Verse 7, alas, for that day is great. That day is, is a reference to a specific day, a specific time that we'll talk about. For that day is great, for there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. 
This refers to the nation of Israel, and it refers to this day, the time of Jacob's trouble. That's an era, that's a period of time that's being spoken of. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will break his yoke from your neck. I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them because of the, 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 the problems they were facing or they will face. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, a literal king in David's lineage. It's not specifically referring to David. It's referring to the house of David. So Israel will have a king again. They don't have a king right now. They haven't had a king since Herod doesn't count, since before the exiles, Zedekiah was their last king. They shall serve David their king, whom I will raise up front for them. So God's going to bring a king back to Israel. So that alerts us because this hasn't happened yet, has it? Therefore, do not fear, O my servant, it Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, for no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make full end of all the nations, as in I will bring all of the history of the world to a complete, to a completion. I will fully realize my plan for history. That full end of the nations isn't destroy the nations. It's I'm going to bring them to their conclusion. I'm going to bring them, remember that word from Sunday, telos. I'm going to fulfill my plans for the nations. Where I've scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. As in, the whole world exists to this end. To exalt Israel as a kingdom. For the whole world to be under. I will not make a complete end of you. I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. Isn't God's going to restore them from their sin or break them free from their sin? A lot in that few verses. No time to study that even in one single 30-minute study. But I wanted just to give you all a preview of what this text is talking about. This promise in Jeremiah is just one of many where the Jews are told the Messiah would come with a kingdom to restore Israel to its former glory, a greater glory. Because the Old Testament is full of promises about just that, about a literal exaltation of Israel over the rest of the earth, as it's explained for us clearly in verse 10 and 11. Now, usually when we talk about, uh, th th when we talk about this, we also talk about the last days in conjunction with it. And uh, again, you can't talk about verse number 11 without talking about the last days because we see this complete end of things. We see this final or this you know, fulfillment mention, which clearly makes us think of the end of days or the fulfillment of time um, of God's plan. So uh, number 21, I've got it for you. The consolation and restoration of the earth will result in Israel finally achieving its promised placement over the nation. So that's the short version of this. Notice in verse 7, the day refers to the day of the Lord. Now, we've talked about this before. The day of the Lord is not a single day. It's a time period. It's, it's an era uh, where God is wrapping things up and God is con you know, bringing things to, a, to an end, as it's detailed here. Now, again, for time purposes, I can't get into this completely, uh, but Jesus talked about that there would be a time of the Gentiles, but once those times were over, God would shift his focus back to Israel, that there was a break in the, in the plan from this point forward. God's dealing with the Gentiles because what does God do? He built a church, and the church is rejected by the Jews, and he turns to the Gentiles, and he uses this time of the Gentiles to reach the rest of the world. Through the gospel, he reaches the world. Again, Israel was given a chance to believe, and Jews still are saved by believing Yet the world continues, uh, as God continues to, to reach people through the gospel, yet God has a plan for Israel, and God intends on wrapping things back up and restoring this earth by exalting Israel over the rest of the world. 
So again, we've got these two different things going on. We've got God's plan with Israel. We've got God's plan with the church. But when this church age ends, God returns to his plans for the earth because he wants to complete his plan for the earth, which results in Israel being exalted over all other nations. God made an unconditional covenant to Israel, to Abraham. We know that story. We know why Israel is important. You can read Romans 11. Romans 11 is important, very important. Uh, Romans 11 verses 13 through 24 tells us about the church age wrapping up in this restored or this renewed focus on Israel starting back up. It's very clearly laid out. The time of the Gentiles ends. This last period of focus on Israel begins. Because of our studying Daniel, Revelations, this time of Jacob's trouble, verse 7, this day of the Lord, we believe, is a seven-year period. Now, I there's a whole lot of uh, information that proves why it's a seven-year period. Um, but seven years is what is the period of Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble, this worldwide struggle between Israel and the kingdom of the earth. So there's going to be this timeline, the, the, the world that we live in now, it's, res- it's going to result in a conflict between Israel and a united front from all the nations. Daniel refers to a lawless man uniting the world against Israel, this revived Roman Empire, if you will, that brings the world uh, against Israel. But the result is that Israel wins because it's through Israel that God exalts his name, improves his superiority, and shows the world that he was in control the whole time. God uses the smallest of nations, the most hated of nations, to exalt his glorious name. That is what he is telling us here in Jeremiah chapter 30. That he is going to establish a literal earthly kingdom, kingdom of God, through the nation of Israel, where the Messiah, Jesus, when he returns, he will rule as king on David's throne in a literal nation of Israel at the end of this trouble that Jacob that the nation of Israel faces. There's so many Bible verses that prove that this is a literal rule of Jesus on earth. Zechariah 14, verse number 16 says, everyone who survives this period of trouble, those that are alive on the earth and those that, of course, come from heaven uh, will come to Jerusalem year after year and worship the king. So it's literal Jesus ruling on earth, on the throne of David. So, The Bible paints this beautiful picture of the Messiah ruling from David's throne as in earth restored to its Edenic state. You can read Revelations 20, Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel 48, Isaiah 2, 11, 19, and 65, and there's a lot more that make it very clear this is a literal future that the earth will experience. Life as it is, but a whole lot better. So why do I bring all this up? Because both of these conversations are salvation as Christians— in God's plan for the nations, it proves that salvation comes out of Zion. Psalm 14, verse 7 says, All that salvation would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So the, the, the psalmist is hoping salvation comes out of Zion. Salvation did come out of Zion. Psalm 50 says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Salvation has come out of Zion, both spiritually and literally for the earth. Right now, 
we are saved and we're being saved at the same time. As in, we're, we've been delivered from sin, but we're constantly being delivered from all the things that come against us. One day, our salvation will be in full. That's the reason we look forward to eternity. That our faith will be made sight. Our salvation will be fulfilled. Creation will be restored. To be saved is to endure to the end, but it's also to hold on to this promise and this hope of eternal life. So we find comfort in these promises, knowing how it all works out, and I think we should be inspired that much more to live each day for God's glory because we know that God's in control, don't we? We don't give up because we rest assured we're right where we need to be. God can cure us from the incurable, and He's going to bring this earth to its desired and intended completion and fulfillment. The God who has the world's future in His hands has your present day in his hands. That should comfort your hearts tonight. I, I hope it comforts your hearts tonight. It comforts my heart. Now, there's a lot to study here. We could spend weeks on this chapter and where it takes us alone. But the goal of this message was to make it very clear to us. Salvation has come out of the nation of Israel. Spiritually through Jesus Christ right now in the church age, but also literally for the earth in the age to come. What an awesome God we have. And as Christians, we ought to be looking up every single day because Jesus, the work he's done in our hearts, he's going to do for this world. And I can't wait to see it all happen with you all alongside. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Um, forgive me for being inadequate and not being able to, to, to just teach this like I need to, like you're worthy of. There's so much here, Father, and I'm just thankful that we can just lay it out and say, God, you have a plan. You have a plan for me right now. You want me to be saved, to be cured of my sin, to be healed of my sin, to be walking in the goodness of life. But you also have a plan for this world. You're going to bring things to your, your desired and intended end, that things will be complete, and it's through Israel that you're going to make it all wrap up and going to make it all make sense. So, Lord, I, I pray that we might would understand the work that you're doing, the plans that you have, and how, how we ought to just be in awe and marvel at how good you are. And just quite frankly, how fortunate we are to get to see it all happen. We don't have to wonder when some of this stuff's going to happen. We get to look back in our history and see it's already happened. So God, as you, save, as you, as you have saved us, as you continue to save us, one day you're going to save this world. And what an awesome day that will be to get to see the kingdom of God established on earth as it is in heaven. God, we thank you. We give you praise and we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.